This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Care of patients with intellectual and developmental disabilities. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, filling in for our moderator, Dr. Jim Allen. I'm Dr. Jim Allen. Dr. Jing Jing Mao is off this week, so I'll be guest hosting today's MedNet webcast. Our topic is intellectual and developmental disability, which as it turns out, is very common. About 1% of the population is considered intellectually disabled, and the basis for the diagnosis is the IQ, or Intelligence Quotient Test. Well, today's IQ tests are pretty good, but the history of IQ testing is dark and discriminatory. The first IQ tests were developed in France at the turn of the 20th century in order to identify students who were likely to struggle in school. This resulted in the Binet-Simon test, which was later modified in the United States as the Stanford Binet test in 1916. During World War I, the U.S. Army wanted to identify soldiers who would be the best candidates for officer training. So they developed a variation of the Binet-Simon test and administered it to 1.75 million recruits, thus becoming the first mass testing of intelligence. However, it turned out that the test they used was heavily affected by the recruits' familiarity with American culture, with the result that the test was racially biased. The dark side of intelligence testing reached a peak in the 1927 U.S. Supreme Court decision of Buck versus Bell. In the case, Carrie Buck was an 18-year-old woman whose foster family had institutionalized her. The superintendent of the institution claimed that testing revealed that she had the mental age of only nine and appealed to the court to have her undergo forced sterilization. 
The Supreme Court's Chief Justice, Oliver Wendell Holmes, wrote the majority opinion authorizing her sterilization, stating that the interest of public welfare outweighed the interest of individuals in their bodily integrity and that she should be forced to be sterilized. After the court's decision, Carrie Buck underwent tubal ligation surgery. In the end, more than 65,000 Americans underwent compulsory sterilization. Sadly, it turns out that Carrie Buck was not even intellectually disabled. She was raped by a member of her foster family and institutionalized by the family to cover up the pregnancy. She was eventually paroled from the institution. She worked full-time and was an avid reader until her death in 1983. Today, Buck versus Bell is considered one of the worst judgments in the history of the Supreme Court, and eugenic sterilization is no longer morally acceptable. And the current IQ tests, such as the Wechsler Intelligence Scales, are a vast improvement over those used by the Army during World War I. But the more than 10 million Americans with intellectual or developmental uh, disability pose unique challenges in primary care practices. Today, we're going to examine these challenges, and we're going to learn what we can do to overcome them. Let me welcome Dr. Heather Saha, who is an assistant professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at The Ohio State University, and Dr. Ashley Bird, who is an assistant professor of psychiatry at Ohio State. Heather, Ashley, welcome. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Well, Heather, at what age is intellectual or developmental disability usually diagnosed? It really depends on the age at which these issues start to present themselves. Um, as we'll discuss, they can have a variety of different implications, and so it can be at really quite as any age. Ashley, what are the psychiatric implications of intellectual and developmental disability? Yeah, so what I'll be touching on today is the fact that we know that this population has a lot higher rates of psychiatric comorbidity than the general population, and that there are unique challenges that need to be considered in terms of diagnosing and managing them. Well, thanks, Ashley. For all of you viewing, don't forget that you can view this and all 120 of our current MedNet webcasts by going to ccme.osu.edu on your web browser. And if you prefer to get your continuing medical education by podcast, we've got one of those too. Just go to your podcast app and search MedNet21CME. Also, you can email us with your questions about intellectual and developmental disability by clicking on the ask a question icon at the bottom of the MedNet webpage. And now let's get started with today's webcast. Heather? Thank you so much. So today we'll be talking about the care of patients with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Between living longer and increasingly living in a community setting as opposed to being in an institutional setting, it's becoming more and more likely that primary care physicians are going to be taking care of patients with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Our hope is that we can help you feel more prepared to do so after our talk today. So today we'll define intellectual and developmental disabilities for you. We'll review the epidemiology of both intellectual and developmental disabilities. We'll discuss some of the health disparities that exist in this population of patients. We'll review some primary care considerations, some ways to hopefully adapt and, and consider the unique challenges um, that this population presents. And then finally, we'll explore the psychiatric considerations of caring for these patients, including the psychopathology, some of the diagnostic challenges, some tips to help in your evaluation, and the issue of polypharmacy. We'll begin by defining developmental disability and intellectual disability. 
A developmental disability is any condition that involves an impairment in one's physical condition, learning ability, language, or behavior. They begin during the developmental period, which usually is before birth, and these are generally lifelong impairments. The causes are many. Some may be genetic, such as Fragile X syndrome or Down syndrome. Some of them can be due to an insult during prenatal development, such as exposure to alcohol in the case of fetal alcohol syndrome, or a congenital infection such as a torch infection. Cerebral palsy can be the result of a complication during birth, and yet many are without a known cause or may be due to multiple different reasons. Intellectual disability is one type of developmental disability. Intellectual disability is defined by three separate criteria that must be met. A patient must have a limitation in intellectual functioning, they must have a limitation in adaptive behaviors, and the onset occurs during the period of development. It's very important to consider that there can be cultural and linguistic influences that can significantly affect how one's adaptations, how one's um, strengths or weaknesses relative to these first two criteria can be interpreted during this evaluation process. So for the first criteria, limitation in intellectual functioning, this is generally measured by standardized IQ testing. And these IQ tests, as Dr. Allen mentioned, are pretty good now. However, there are still some realms, some domains that are not quite captured on, on IQ testing. And this can involve experiential learning, how quickly somebody is able to learn, their ability to um, understand complex thoughts, things like that. The vast majority of patients with an intellectual disability are considered to have a mild intellectual disability. And these patients have IQs in the range of 50 to 69. A patient with moderate intellectual disability has an IQ between 35 to 49. And an IQ of 20 to 34 would put somebody in the severe intellectual disability category. Patients are considered to have profound intellectual disability when their IQ is less than 20. And as you can see, with increasing severity of intellectual disability, the rates become lower. Adaptive behaviors are very important um, because these influence a, a patient's ability to function day to day in society. Um, we can further classify these skills into conceptual skills, social skills, and practical skills. So for conceptual skills, is the patient able to engage in reciprocal conversation? How is their grasp of, of numbers? And are they able to apply that to the concepts of money and time, for example? Social skills are quite important because in many cases, these are a driving factor to how independent a patient can truly become in their life. Um, this has to do with their their interpersonal communication. Do they understand sarcasm? Do they understand humor? How naive or gullible might this person be? And this is important because that can influence their likelihood of being taken advantage of and, and potentially abused. Do they understand rules and laws and, and how to follow them? Do they understand the implications of not doing so? And then practical skills. These refer to activities of daily living, 
and instrumental activities of daily living. From a practical standpoint, I spend quite a bit of time with these patients trying to understand where their skills, where their strengths and weaknesses are. The benefit of these adaptive behaviors is these are learned behaviors, and so they can change over time. If we can identify where a weakness is, then we can tailor supports. We can put strategies into place. We can help the patient. So for example, is this a patient who would benefit from a social skills group or perhaps from speech therapy to help them learn and understand the pragmatics of speech? Is this a patient who would benefit from occupational therapy so that they can become more independent in their activities of daily living? Here locally, we are very fortunate that we have an occupational therapy program that patients like this can go to to help them um, as they prepare to learn to drive, which is really quite essential for many adults for their independence. And then the last criteria is onset during the developmental period, and this is generally accepted to be before age 22. Historically, the age limit was 18, however, um, the American Association on Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities has increased that age limit to reflect newer, more recent data that shows that our brains do continue to evolve and to develop into our 20s. And like we talked about for developmental disabilities, the causes for intellectual disability are many. Um, genetics, again, Down syndrome is the most common genetic cause of intellectual disability. Thankfully, traumatic causes, metabolic causes, um, these have decreased over time. Um, the traumatic causes have decreased, thankfully, to public health initiatives such as wearing seatbelts, wearing helmets. Um, newborn screening, universal uh, newborn screening has become very helpful in decreasing some of these metabolic causes such as PKU and hypothyroidism. Most cases of mild intellectual disability are not genetic in cause. However, the converse is true. The more severe one's intellectual disability is, the more likely that there is a genetic basis to it. Let's discuss the epidemiology. About one in six children between the ages of three and 17 years of age in the US has a developmental disability. As Dr. Allen talked about in the opening, about 1% of the global population has an intellectual disability. And in the US, that translates to a total of about 10 to 16 million people. According to the United Nations Development Program, about 80% of all people with a disability live in a low-income country. Health disparities, we know that these exist in this population of patients. Unfortunately, we know that patients with an intellectual or developmental disability have shorter life expectancy. And on average, that can be between 13 and 20 years below that of the general population. We know that they have increased rates of a variety of medical problems, such as obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and epilepsy. During the COVID-19 pandemic, patients with an intellectual or developmental disability were six times increased risk of dying from COVID-19 compared to the general population. And we know that these patients also have decreased rates of completed routine preventive health screenings. A very well-known example is that of cervical cancer screening. They also have higher rates of poor dental health, and they also have decreased rates of being up-to-date with recommended vaccines. So why do these health disparities exist? 
Genetic factors. Genetic factors could be that there is an underlying genetic basis to their intellectual disability that also predisposes these patients to having additional medical comorbidities. Communication barriers are a very large part of this. So the patient may not be able to verbally communicate and advocate for themselves. They may not be able to fully understand or implement a plan that's given to them by their doctor, by their provider. There may be a lot of people involved in caring for this patient. And so it's not uncommon for a patient with maybe moderate, severe, profound intellectual disability to come into the office with a staff member from their supported living environment who comes in prepared primarily with a, a printed medication list, but really no other further information. And if this is not a patient who is able to verbally advocate for themselves, then it, the, the provider may have to proactively seek out collateral information. They may have to get more information from a day program supervisor, a parent, a guardian, a nursing supervisor, a home health aide, or home health nurse. And then this leads us into some of the systematic barriers. So that obviously requires a great deal more effort and time. Um, and that can be hard to incorporate into a busy primary care practice. But we also know that there can be a lack of access um, to appropriate care for these patients. Um, many of us did not necessarily receive specific training, whether it was during medical school or residency or beyond, to help us feel comfortable, feel confident, and equipped to caring for these patients. A lot of times, these patients are excluded from different studies, from different health promotion activities as well. So these are just some of the systematic barriers that these patients face. So let's discuss what we can do in the primary care setting to try to ensure that we are giving patients the same high quality care that we give to all of our other patients. One of the most important things that, that I do a little bit differently with these patients is really focus on getting a robust social and, and living history for them. So where is the patient living? Who is involved in their care? How independent are they? What types of supports do they get and how is that funded? What has been tried before? That can be really, really, really essential to helping figure out how you're going to approach and care for many of their other issues as well. Allowing the patient to consent to examination and testing regardless of their verbal communication skills is paramount. So if a patient is not able to verbally communicate with you, you may need to rely on body language. You may need to rely on facial expression. But just as when you speak with a patient that requires an interpreter, we are all taught to focus on the patient and not the interpreter. Talk to the patient directly, not the interpreter. The same should be true for these patients as well. Understanding that these patients are at increased risk for abuse um, and being able to screen for that, um, to feel comfortable, to feel empowered, to ask about that, um, and keeping a high you know, threshold of concern for that, depending on the situation, depending on the issues that are being discussed. We've already talked a little bit about the need for collateral information, um, and we were talking about some of the communication barriers. Um, but I just want to emphasize that that can be very vital to how you're going to care for this patient. I make note of prioritizing quality over quantity. And by that, what I mean is many of these patients have a history of negative experiences with the healthcare setting. And so really prioritizing building rapport and trust with the patient. 
And this may mean that those first several visits are truncated. They may not give you everything that you wanted to know. You may have to limit your exam. You may have to tailor how and when and where you do your exam. So the patient may not get up on the exam table. You may have to do it with them standing, maybe with them sitting in the chair. Um, you may have to save a sensitive part of the exam for the patient. So maybe they don't tolerate ear exams. Maybe you save that for the very last. Or maybe this is a patient who gets very nervous coming in and they want the exam done before you've done any talking yet. So just being flexible and being able to make some of those changes can really go a long way in building this relationship with the patient. And then the last point I have is the consideration of using an anxiolytic to help facilitate specific exams or testing. Um, so patient, you know, after further discussion, you may need to give them a, a medication before they're able to tolerate a, a pelvic exam or a vaccine or a blood draw. A lot of times working towards desensitization to some of these things, um, particularly blood draws and vaccines, can be helpful and can be done again, with the appropriate supports um, and effort and time going into that. As far as the care that we are providing these patients, the recommendations follow the general screening and immunization recommendations. I want to highlight focusing on sexual and reproductive health. This is one of the areas of greatest disparity in these patients. Um, often due to pre-existing assumptions um, that are made about this population. Higher rates of mental illness exist in this population, so having a lower threshold to, to screen for anxiety, for depression, for OCD, um, and recognizing maybe earlier signs of that than you might otherwise in a general population. Consider screening labs um, in situations, again, where you might not otherwise do routine labs. So particularly if a patient is, um, giving, you know, is giving you limited information limited verbal skills, limited collateral information, um, considering doing a blood counts, chemistry, thyroid function tests to help supplement the information you are able to gather either through history or through exam. And then if the patient's living in a group setting, consider screening for inf infectious diseases such as tuberculosis and vaccinated against hepatitis A and hepatitis B. So let's consider, let's use Down syndrome to look at some of the syndrome-specific concerns. So many of the genetic um, syndromes that include intellectual or developmental disability, they do have specific screening recommendations that you can follow. The National Down Syndrome Society has a wonderful resource, wonderful, wonderful website that can help guide this. And so the point of this chart is just to show you that there's additional screening that is done at younger ages and perhaps at increased frequency compared to the general population and knowing where you can go for these resources. So for example, with these screenings, it reflects their increased likelihood to have thyroid disorders, their increased risk for leukemia, their increased risk for Alzheimer's dementia. So just an understanding that these do exist, they're out there, um, and they can help guide your management for these patients. And then the last, uh, the last issue that I was wanting to discuss today are the legal issues. And this is something that is really important and should be something that's discussed very early on in the relationship with the patient, or if you're taking care of young patients as soon as they turn 18. 
So not every patient with intellectual disability or developmental disability needs a guardian. In fact, many patients with developmental disabilities and, and mild intellectual disability are able to be their own guardians. Most people will advocate for the least restrictive support being put into place. And please note that some of the options, some of the terminology can vary state by state. So here in Ohio, we often will talk about guardianship versus supported decision making. If both the provider, the patient, and the patient's family or caregivers feel that the patient is not capable of being their, their own independent guardian. Guardianship appoints another individual as guardian over the patient. And so that other individual would need to consent to any treatment, any procedure, be involved in these medical decisions each step of the way. It effectively removes the ability for the patient to make these decisions on their own. Other option is supported decision making. And for a lot of patients, this can be a good middle ground. It allows the patient the ability to retain their ability to, to consent to a procedure, but it also allows them to involve a trusted um, loved one, family member, some other individual in helping them to make decisions. And then healthcare power of attorney and advanced directives these also should be parts of the conversation um, that are involved on a regular basis and like I said, at an earlier time point than you might for somebody who does not have an intellectual or developmental disability. At this point, I'd like to turn the talk over to my colleague, Dr. Ashley Burr, to talk about some of the psychiatric implications. Thank you so much, Dr. Saha. Okay, so I imagine that a lot of you are probably familiar with the concept of dual diagnosis, and for most of us that might be the idea of the coexistence of mental illness and substance use disorders. However, in this context, it also refers to the coexistence of intellectual disabilities and mental illness. And the fact that we are talking about this reflects a paradigm shift that occurred in the field of psychiatry roughly in the 1980s because historically it was believed that persons with intellectual disabilities lacked the cognitive capacity to develop psychiatric disorders. And so now that we know that they can experience psychopathology, there are, have been a lot of studies on the rates of it in this population. And in general, it seems like the prevalence is much higher than that of the general population. So it can range from 10 to 80%, but most literature supports 30 to 50%. And the reason that these rates vary so widely is it, it essentially depends on the population that was sampled in the studies. So for example, was this general outpatient versus psychiatric outpatient or these hospitalized patients were these from administrative data? Another important thing to think about is how the, the authors define mental ill health. So were they just looking primarily at depressive, anxiety disorders, or were they also looking at substance use disorders, personality disorders, and even challenging behaviors? One of the more well-known studies was published in 2007 by Cooper et al. They did a population-based study of about 1,000 adults with intellectual disabilities in the greater Glasgow area. And for everyone that was involved in this study, they were initially assessed by a study nurse that had specialized um, ID qualifications. And then all of those cases were discussed with their general practitioner. 
And essentially anyone that had any kind of whiff of possible mental ill health were then referred to a specialized um, ID psychiatry assessment. And then based on those assessments, diagnoses were made either by using clinical judgment, the ICD or the DSM, or the DCLD. And the DCLD is, so the Diagnostic Criteria for Psychiatric Disorders for Use with Adults with Learning Disabilities, it's essentially meant to be kind of a companion to the ICD and the DSM. Um, and I just want to note that in the UK, intellectual disability is synonymous with learning disabilities. And so this table here um, highlights some of the findings of this study. And the trend essentially is that using the you know diagnostic criteria that we use most commonly can really um, miss misdiagnoses in this population some other studies have also looked at this of course and so what we've seen is that for example folks with schizophrenia um, the prevalence is higher in the ID population at roughly 3% versus 1% in the general population. Depression, there's a point prevalence of about 3 to 4% in this in this population compared to 1.7 in the general population. And that bipolar disorder uh, occurs in this population at roughly twice the rate of the general population. I also want to draw attention to the fact that there are known genetic syndromes that have associations with various psychiatric conditions. Um, for example, Down syndrome, we know that folks with Down syndrome have higher rates of depression, OCD, and Alzheimer's. So I now want to talk about some of the diagnostic challenges when working with this patient population. There's a number of reasons that make that making these diagnoses, diagnoses is more challenging. And unfortunately, that can lead to underdiagnosis, inaccurate diagnosis, and, and thus inadequate treatment of their mental health issues. However, if you know special considerations for this population, then you can make you know, modifications to your assessments, which will then lead to improved diagnosis and then development of appropriate treatments. So Dr. Subner is a psychiatrist um, out of Massachusetts. He's published a lot in this field. And in 1986, he published a paper on four aspects of intellectual disability, which can increase the difficulty of assessment. So the first one is baseline exaggeration. And so what this means essentially is that you might have a baseline behavior that becomes more severe or frequent during the course of a psychiatric illness. So for example, if you know a person is aggressive in the course of a psychiatric illness, they become more severely aggressive more frequently then that behavior might become the focus rather than the fact that there could be an underlying psychiatric disorder. Intellectual distortion. Um, so this is when the patient can't understand the question asked or formulate an accurate response. So you might see this in, you know, in, in folks that have deficits in abstract thinking. So for example, asking a patient, do you hear voices? If they're interpreting that more concretely, they might say yes, but not understand the implication of the question. Psychosocial masking. So this is when um, due to a developmental delay, a patient might present with symptoms that occur within a developmental framework more 
aligned with like a young child versus a same aged peer. So for example, if you have an adult patient talking about, you know, their best friend Woody the cowboy and all the wonderful adventures that they go on, you might, you know, wonder like, you know, is this person delusional? But if you, you realize that their their mental framework is more um, of that of a young child, then you would see that it's contextually appropriate. The last thing that Sevner touched on was cognitive disintegration. And so essentially that means that because um, some of these patients have a decreased ability to cope with stressors, um, they might become grossly disorganized or regress to more priv primitive behaviors and appear psychotic. So for example, losing skills, not being able to do things um, as well that they previously had mastered. A few other things to consider. So there is this concept of cloak of competence and that can be the tendency for some, some of these patients to attempt to hide their disability. There is also acquiescence bias or yesing, and that essentially is the tendency to answer questions in a way that's not consistent with their experience or false, falsely answering the questions based on what they think that the evaluator wants to hear. And then lastly, diagnostic overshadowing. That is the tendency for clinicians to overlook the presence of psychopathology attributing behavior issues to being because of the underlying disability. And so now that we've talked about some of the, the difficulties, we can talk about how we can modify our assessments to help get a, a better understanding of what's going on with our patients. So first talking about patient interviews. So limiting yes or no questions. So as I mentioned on the slide previous, the acquiescence bias or the yesing, um, want to ask more open-ended questions, any questions that you do ask in a yes or no format, follow up to make sure that they understand. For example, if you ask the patient if they're anxious, you know, follow up with, do you know what I mean when I talk about anxiety and can you tell me an example of when you were anxious? Using simple vocabulary and short sentences is helpful important to ask one question at a time to allow the patient to think about the question and formulate their response. Again, important to make sure that you're checking in periodically to make sure that they're actually understanding the questions and the topics that you're discussing. And then if needed, use materials to help complement the interview, for, for example, using communication assistive devices. And something that is really important to stress is that these things are gonna take more time. So it's really important that to do right by your patient to plan for a longer assessment. Dr. Zaha talked on this a little bit, but I also wanted to expand on um, the role of collateral information. It's really important to get multiple sources of collateral information. It's important to get information from different settings. So for example, people that live with them in the home, their teachers at school, supervisors at work or caregivers at their day program. This is helpful because if you see that there are, for example, behavioral issues at one place and not any of the others, then there might be an environmental factor contributing to that. It's also important to clarify how well the person knows the patient because obviously someone that has been working with the patient for say 10 years knows the patient a lot better than a staff member that might've just started working with them last week. A few caveats with, with collateral information. 
it's important to remember that this is not from the patient's perspective. It's from what the, the outside per the person's observing. And that specifically externalizing symptoms tend to be reported much more frequently than internalizing symptoms. So for example, aggression would be much more likely to be reported than like social withdrawal. Wanted to touch on challenging behaviors. Um, this can include things like self-harming behaviors, aggression, property destruction, and these are essentially the number one reason that patients with intellectual disabilities are brought to a mental health attention. And because these patients might have a limited ability to self-report medical issues, a lot of times these things are overlooked. So medical issues, drug side effects, can commonly cause these things, but the a medical evaluation isn't conducted. And so things to keep in mind that might be underlying the challenging behaviors are things like constipation, urinary tract infections, dental pain, and headaches. Also wanted to talk about anxiety. So we know that aggression is a nonspecific behavior. Um, some of these folks have a decreased ability to regulate their emotions. They have difficulty um, communicating when they're in distress. And so that ultimately comes in, it comes out in the form of aggression. It's important to look at potential provoking events or environments. For example, a recent change in schools or staff that works with the patient or perhaps a disruptive home environment. And it's important to consider these things because there's often an assumption that these behaviors can or should be managed with medications, which leads to overlooking an assessment of the root cause, which would lead to missing the opportunity to address environmental issues. It's also important to look at the developmental effects on psychopathology. So it's important to consider the symptoms in the context of their developmental level or mental age. And this is where some of the difficulty comes in with using the DSM. So the DSM was developed with the general population in mind. And so it's not as reliable for some folks with intellectual disability. And studies actually reflect that using the DSM consistently results in lower rates of, of diagnosis. It also, the DSM emphasizes self-report, which is not possible and, and or is sometimes unreliable in this population. So one text that I would like to bring attention to is the Diagnostic Manual for Intellectual Disability. It is a collaboration between the National Association for the Duly Diagnosed and the American Psychiatric Association. And it essentially was intended um, to be a companion to the DSM to assist making psychiatric diagnoses in this population. And so the DMID-2 is the one that was uh, formatted for the DSM-5. And so I wanted to take a look at depression as an example, since um, I, I know a lot of you will be seeing this in your routine practice. So some of the difficulties with using the DSM in, in diagnosing depression are that there's a limitability to self-report internal mood states or recognize and identify their feelings, which then leads to an increased reliance on caregiver reports, which again, can't you know 100% accurately reflect what actually is going on um, in the patient. It's also important to keep in mind some developmental factors. 
So for example, there might be less demonstration of certain cognitive symptoms, such as feelings of guilt or worthlessness. And then again, the neurodevelopmental profiles might parallel younger neurotypical peers. So for example, when, when asking about the symptom of anhedonia, a neurotypical adult might be able to communi communicate that I don't care to do things that I used to enjoy. However, a person that with intellectual disability that might not be able to do that um, might throw a tantrum when they're prompted to engage in an activity that they had previously enjoyed. So keeping in mind some of the challenges, these are some modifications to um, the DSM criteria. So instead of, you know, necessarily relying on self-reported mood, you can, you know, observe their affect. So, you know, people that are close to this person, do they, have they noticed if their facial expressions are different? Like, are they smiling less? Are they more tearful? Do they seem more irritable and angry? In terms of anhedonia, is this person starting to refuse activities they used to enjoy? Are they becoming more socially withdrawn? Or if they are participating in activities, it seems like they're not having a good time like they used to. Some of the more cognitive symptoms, so the feelings of worthlessness, um, might present as negative self-statements, like I'm a bad person, or reassurance seeking that they are a good person. It's important to note that, especially for folks with severe to profound intellectual disabilities, won't have the ability to express these. And then in terms of like risk assessment, um, so path passive thoughts of death, suicidal thoughts, um, these patients might speak more about death or have more morbid preoccupations or they might even make threats of or make a suicide attempt. Um, in terms of severity of ID, that affects how depression can present. So especially in, in the case of mild intellectual disability, it's easier to diagnose. They're mo more likely to present with the full range of diagnostic criteria. Although it is important to make sure that they have, that you have an understanding of their, their language skills to make sure that there aren't any modifications needed, like if you were to use a PHQ, for example. Looking at more severe, um, the more severe side of the spectrum, the cognitive symptoms might not typically be described, um, especially if they have little to no verbal ability. They might not be able to express hopelessness or feelings of guilt. And so then the emphasis needs to be on more observable factors, such as has this person been eating much less than before? Have they lost a lot of weight? Is their sleep really disrupted? And etc. Lastly, I wanted to talk about the topic of polypharmacy. It's a concern for the population as a whole, but also a growing concern for this population. So there was a paper published in 2013, the Atlas on Primary Care of Adults with Developmental Disabilities in Ontario. And they looked at um, about 50,000 adults aged 18 to 64 that were enrolled in the Ontario Drug Benefits Program. And they looked at um, this population for about a year. And what they found is that roughly 26% of the sample were prescribed two to four meds concurrently. 13% were on five to seven meds concurrently. And then 8% were on eight or more up to 41 meds concurrently. 
Digging deeper, they found that dual diagnosis significantly increases the risk for polypharmacy. So within this, you know, 50,000 sample, approximately half were dually diagnosed and half were not. And of the dually diagnosed, 59% were prescribed five or more meds concurrently compared to 35% of the non-dually diagnosed. Looking at trends for the entire sample, um, they looked at the most commonly prescribed medications and half of them were psychotropic. And so by far the most commonly prescribed psychotropic medication were antipsychotics, um, followed closely by sedative hypnotics, serotonergic antidepressants, and anticonvulsants. Although what I'll say about this is that they didn't delineate whether or not these were done, um, these were treatments for seizure disorders or if they were being used as mood stabilizers. Taking a look at the antipsychotic group specifically, um, of the 21% of the population that were prescribed the antipsychotics, 19% of them were taking two or more concurrently. 11% were taking two or more concurrently for con consistently for a period of three months, and 7% were on two or more antipsychotics continuously for six months or longer. And so in summary, um, the intellectual and developmental disability population is a sizable portion of our, our population. They have higher rates of physical and mental health conditions. For a variety of reasons, they have difficulty accessing the healthcare that they need and consistently getting the healthcare that they need. It's really important to consider their personal and social environments. And I would say the biggest thing is to make sure that you understand where their strengths and weaknesses are so you can modify your assessments as needed to essentially empower them to um, have a more active role in their care. Well, thanks, Ashley. Last month on MedNet, we had a program on anxiety and depression in the young, and, and we heard that there are effective primary care screening tools such as the PHQ-9 for depression and the GAD-7 for anxiety. Can these inventories also be used for patients with intellectual or developmental disability? So in some cases, yes. It's important to know that the PHQ and the GAD uh, screening tools were both based on the DSM-4 criteria for depression and uh, generalized anxiety. And so as I had mentioned, the folks with a more mild intellectual disability are more likely to, one, be able to report these symptoms, but then also present with the full gamut of the, the diagnostic criteria. Um, with the more severe intellectual disabilities, it's, it's less likely that they'll be able to self-report um, a lot of the symptoms. And so it's just important to know the patient's like communication and, and cognitive skills before considering whether or not to use these tools. Cognitive behavioral therapy is often the cornerstone of treatment for anxiety or depression. Can it be used for those patients with intellectual or developmental disability? Yes. So unfortunately, even though we know that rates of psychopathology are a lot higher in this patient population, there's really a dearth of research on treatments for them. A lot of the times this population is excluded in you know, drug trials or other types of interventions for health conditions, psychiatric conditions. 
Um, but the research that is available does show that CBT can be effective, especially at targeting depression and anger in this population. It's just important to make sure that the materials are modified in a way that the patient can understand. Well, Heather, I'd like to ask you about autism spectrum disorders. What are some of the clues that a child might have autism that we should be on the lookout for when parents bring their child into the primary care office for, say, a routine visit? Depends a little bit on the age of the child. So for the child that's between one and two years old, you're looking for, for children who are not following the typical patterns for speech development. Perhaps they're not dis um, displaying pretend play. They're not showing joint attention or they failed a, a autism screening that's done usually around 18 months of age. For the older child, so perhaps somebody that's in preschool or kindergarten or early elementary age, these are children that seem to have exaggerated responses to sensory input. So a child who still has a pretty significantly self-restricted diet, perhaps due to sensory issues with eating. Um, these are children who are refusing to wear certain types of clothing, refusing to wear shoes. Um, maybe they're having problems in school because they are having tantrums or they don't understand how to get along with others, follow instructions, and they get very upset by kind of minor um, changes in their routine. I know many people with autism spectrum disorders who were not diagnosed until they were late teenage uh, years. How important is it to identify these children early in life? Well, the earlier the diagnosis is made, the earlier you can start supports and interventions. And so if physical or occupational or speech therapy is needed, then you can get them linked with those types of resources. Um, one of the problems with the delayed diagnosis of autism is oftentimes those signs are being recognized, but they're being misdiagnosed as something else. And that can lead to medication trials that are exposing that child to side effects without the potential for truly benefiting from them. Um, one of the things that I see in my, my patient population of adults with autism is for those that are diagnosed later, um, usually in their teens or maybe young adulthood, it almost gives them the sense of acceptance. Um, it helps them realize that parts of themselves that maybe they were told needed to change or were wrong or were bad, some, somehow negatively labeled, that it gives them an explanation and it helps them have some acceptance for that. What's the next step for a primary care provider who does identify or suspects an autism spectrum disorder? Further testing, um, and, and typically that involves um, a referral to whether it's behavioral health or psychology or psychiatry, depends a little bit on what local resources you have, but it does require then further evaluation. Well, Ashley, you mentioned the problem of polypharmacy in patients with intellectual and developmental disability. Are there certain drugs that we should be particularly trying to avoid prescribing? I don't think that I would say there are specific medications to avoid. I think it's important to be judicious about the medications that you do decide to prescribe for the patient. So it's important to make sure that you have a good understanding or a good conceptualization of what's going on with the patient. Make sure that you're factoring medical comorbidities and considering possibility for medication interactions. Then also considering your you know, previous experience, your comfort with managing medications that have a higher side effect profile like antipsychotics. So I don't think it's necessarily important to avoid prescribing specific medications. I think it's more important to avoid just throwing medications at someone uh, for a problem and instead trying to figure out what is underlying the, the problem so you can formulate a more appropriate treatment plan. What about substance abuse in people with intellectual or developmental disability? Is it a problem and does it require any kind of special approach? 
Yeah, so similar to the issue of higher rates of other psychiatric conditions, there is a higher rate of substance use disorders in this population and much lower rates of treatment for them. Um, obviously, anyone, unfortunately, that suffers with a substance use disorder um, has a lot of barriers to accessing treatment, and that certainly applies to this population, but there are some other things that might not immediately come to mind. For example, the physical accessibility of the clinics or, you know, are the staff trained? Are there materials available that would be used for folks that have more vision or hearing impairments? So again, it's making, you know, knowing the patient's needs and making the accommodations so they can get the care that they need. Well, Heather, when patients with intellectual or developmental disability approach adulthood, they often need to transition from their pediatrician to an internist or family physician. What are some of your recommendations for making that transition as smooth as possible? Ideally, the transition process would start even a couple years before the patient really did need to transfer their providers. Um, usually, a, a, that first visit, a lot of time is dedicated to helping to explain to the patient and their family some of what feels like a culture shock to them. So some of the difference between how pediatric care is delivered and approached um, versus how it is on the adult side and what kinds of supports are available. Um, a lot of times they are used to a lot of outreach from the pediatric provider. They're used to the parents being heavily involved in all of the decision making and, and that can kind of reverse on the adult side. Um, so just helping them to sort of understand what that looks like um, and then making sure you've got a good grasp of what their care has looked like. And that may involve reaching out to their pediatrician or pediatric providers to try to find out what has been done, what has been tried so that you're not reinventing the wheel with them. One final question. You mentioned in your presentation that uh, one of the causes of these disabilities can be early exposure or even prenatal exposure mm -hmm. to toxins and infections. When a woman comes to you in your practice and says that she is entertaining the possibility of getting pregnant in the future, what do you tell her that can help reduce the chance of having a child with um, a developmental or intellectual disability? Mm -hmm. um, a lot of it is, is sort of general. So talking with them about taking prenatal vitamins, healthy living habits, reviewing medications that they may be on, and, and helping them understand what are the risks and benefits of taking this while I am pregnant or not pregnant. Um, so a lot of it is kind of risks and benefits of these, these lifestyle choices and then what they're currently taking. Well, thanks, Heather. Mm -hmm. We're going to finish up with a couple of final key points about intellectual and developmental disability. Heather? I would just like to emphasize that patients with intellectual and developmental disability deserve the same high level of primary care that you would provide to any other patient. And it can be done with some adjustments and with some understandings of some of the unique challenges that these patients face. Um, they can still get the same level of, of high quality primary care that everybody deserves. And Ashley. I would like to share a similar sentiment. Um, this patient population is wonderful to work with, although they do have some very unique challenges. And unfortunately, a lot of providers are reluctant to care for them in their practice. Um, but I would say when you do come across them as a patient, make sure that you take a genuine interest, make sure you're taking time to get to know them because that will have such a meaningful impact on both them and their family. Well, Heather and Ashley, thanks again for joining us today. For all of you viewing, don't forget that you can get American Board of Internal Medicine maintenance and certification points for viewing MedNet and then answering the post-test questions following the webcast. 
Dr. Jingjing Mao will be back next week with her guest, pediatric infectious disease specialist, Dr. Joshua Watson, to discuss tick-borne diseases, something we should all be thinking about with spring just around the corner.